I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Today on Encountering Silence, we are pleased to be having a conversation with Dr. Loretta Coleman-Brown, who is a professor emerita of psychology at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. She is also a graduate of the Spiritual Guidance Program at the Shalem Institute for Spiritual Formation. In her work, she writes about and promotes not only contemplative spirituality, but also celebrates the life, work, and teaching of the American mystic and civil rights pioneer, Howard Thurman. You can find her recent essays included in books like Embodied Spirits, Spiritual Directors of Color Tell Their Stories, and Living into God's Dream, Dismantling Racism in America. She co-authored an essay on Thurman that appears in the book, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, Stories of Contemplation and Justice. You can find links to purchase these books on the show notes page for this podcast at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. Now, I could go on and on about Professor Brown's impressive career, PhD from Harvard, taught at the University of Michigan, et cetera, et cetera. But bullet points on a CV do not reveal the soul of a person. I've known Professor Brown for probably close to 10 years now, and she is not only a true contemplative and a gentle soul, but has impressed me as someone who so clearly understands the complex issues and challenges that face our society today, both in social and political terms. But she recognizes that the struggle for justice or for dismantling racism needs to emerge from a place of deep wisdom and compassion in order to be truly healthy and to sustain lasting and meaningful positive change. She's an inspiration to me, and so I am really honored to welcome Dr. Loretta Coleman-Brown to Encountering Silence. Professor Brown, welcome. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to join you this afternoon. So you are a professor of psychology, a spiritual director, spiritual companion, an educator, and a writer. Can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with silence? Well, I started as a young child who was drawn to the wind outside. I grew up in Southern California, in Pasadena, California. And, of course, there we had the Santa Ana winds, so they were kind of warm and balmy. And um, there was something I found very peaceful about sitting in the wind. And so I used to like to go outside. Whenever I saw any gust of wind around, I would just uh, say to my mother or father, you know, I think I'd like to go sit out in that wind. And I'm not sure if my family thought I was a little odd or weird or something, but my mother would normally just say, well, honey, put on a jacket and 
Well, well, just, you know, as long as you, you're okay. And so there was something that I found that I later was able to name as stillness um, that is outside and that we often aren't aware of because we usually are outside to do something as opposed to just sit and be outside. So I think some of my early encounters were outside, but I also went to Catholic school. And of course, you know, there were many times when we were required to be quiet, either during mass or in the classroom. And so I learned a lot about being quiet, being silent. Um, You know, I used to think about there were moments in mass where you could hear a pin drop for real. And so I had a lot of encounters with silence as a as a child. And I think there was some period of time, probably during adolescence, when I wasn't quite as uh, connected to silence, but found myself back in that place uh, when I went to college and started learning about different kinds of meditation practices and uh, actually got taught some Tibetan meditation initially with the chanting. And I thought the chanting was fine, but I actually liked that silence part more. (laughs) So I'm curious, I just want to jump in. I'm so happy to talk to you. And the Tibetan Buddhist thing, just, uh, it's a brief thing that you just mentioned there. Uh, I do, my work is in comparative theology. Uh, My my, uh, graduate stuff is in that. And I actually am involved in Roman Catholic and Tibetan Buddhist dialogue. So I'm kind of curious as to what chanting were you, were they teaching you a specific chant or was there a particular practice that you learned and where did you learn that? So it was, you know, there are no accidents, obviously. And uh, I was a student at University of California, Santa Cruz, which was at the time probably in its infancy. Maybe I started about six, maybe five or six years after it opened. Um, So early 70s. And there appeared on the horizon, probably sometime during my junior year, a young woman who was completing her dissertation at Columbia or Cornell, I can't remember now, but her name is Jan Willis. And um, she's uh, the author of the book um, From Baptist to Buddhist. Yes. Um, yes. One Woman's, yes, you all are familiar book, with yeah. her. <clears throat> so she started um, you know, teaching seminars. And so my, my roommate, Ruth, took a seminar with her. And then uh, we asked her over one day to teach us how to meditate. <clears throat> so we got our little beads. We had little beads. And... Um, we were, we were meditating to a particular deity called Dorchi Sampa. Yes. Who's the deity to end all suffering. Yes. And, that's, and so she had us memorize this Sanskrit chant. And so we were doing our little chanting every day. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was really my first introduction to that kind of contemplative practice. Uh, she is now um, living in Atlanta after retiring from... Um, Wesleyan, and we are, you know, reconnected again, and so we chat from time to time. But I am so grateful to her because she opened that door to a whole nother world for me uh, of, you know, meditation and other other ways of uh, experiencing a presence or the mystery or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then I started doing, um, as a result, a lot of reading 
um, you know, reading the autobiography of a yogi and, you know, all those kinds of things. Uh, and actually during the early, no, I guess after I graduated, I did a TM, as many people were doing at the time. Yep. And so spent some time doing TM. I had a little difficulty, though, and I think this is probably uh, sometimes a problem for some people who have been Catholic. I was a little bothered by the Sanskrit and the fact that I didn't really know what my mantra meant. And so that's when I began to understand that I could probably just use a phrase from the Bible or something in English and know what, what I was saying. So, uh, uh, so, but I, 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 I will never forget the change in my life as a result of being introduced to some kind of spirituality that I just didn't know about before. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you. That's that. Yeah, and I I agree with you. I, it's been my experience too that going to a a kind of a tradition that's foreign to me that that I wasn't raised in, and to learn about that and to be exposed to that and it actually really opened up the doors for me. So it sounds similar in your instance. Thank you for that. Well, and I just want to also mention because I think it allowed me to then you know, go to, at some point, a Vipassama retreat and, you know, just explore other um, traditions. And I, you know, as, as I came full circle, I, I began to understand. And when I learned a little bit more about Christian spirituality, that we have had all of those, you know, tenets in there all along. It's just that it's been not exposed to most people. And I think it's taken this last 10 to 20 years for people to begin to understand that it started with the desert fathers and mothers, you know, and, you know, the exactly. solitude, the silence, the stillness. So um, it was, it's been present. It just has not been readily available to people who are going to churches, Christian churches, just, you know, and even now I get a few people looking sideways at me when I start talking about meditation yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, and I, and I try to help them to understand that, you know, meditation has been a part of Christianity since, Christianity began. Right. And even and even before, if you count Jesus, who was not a Christian, by That's the way. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> There's that subtle little thing that people seem to forget. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Who often, you know, got away to go and be quiet outside. Right. So um, it's, it's kind of ironic, I think, that um, you have these people that are very fearful of anything that has to do with meditation or thinks it's all from the East. Um, and actually, there's a new uh, place, and I think you may be familiar with this, Carl, the Trust for Meditation, mm-hmm. um, that is devoted to trying to inform Westerners that there is, in fact, th- these traditions, these contemplative traditions, they've been around forever. So, you know, I'm grateful that there's a movement on that front. Yeah. Thank you, Professor Brown. That's just wonderful. Just so much uncovering you know, that we've been needing to do over these last years, as, you, as you've said, to uncover that truth of Christianity as meditation was always a part of it. Like you said, mm-hmm. the desert fathers and mothers. Um, I'm curious how how then your practice has evolved in your own life. I, I was reading about your Saturdays, uh, your centering prayer practice and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about how that has kind of evolved in your own life and how you've continued to uncover it in your world. Well, I, certainly 
I continued to have some interest in spirituality um, as I moved through graduate school and uh, my first career positions. I think, unfortunately, you know, the demands there kind of distract you, or I should not say distract, but pull you away from oftentimes your spiritual practice. And it really wasn't until I was on a leave in 1984-85, I was at the Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences in Palo Alto. And um, I'd had a number of people um, ask me if I had encountered the A Course in Miracles. And I kept saying, no, no, no. And so I was happy to be out one day and I saw it in a bookstore. And I decided, hey, I'm on sabbatical. Let me let me check this out. And I was very intrigued by it and realized that many of the, the practices and exercises in it are about meditation. They're about being quiet. They're about being silent um, with the idea of God is always speaking. Spirit is always speaking to us. And we can only hear that in the silence. I think that's a very difficult concept for people to understand because they think of hearing things as in words, but we right, can connect, right. you know, to things that are beyond words. And so I, that really triggered my desire to, to begin a regular practice again. And I think from then on, I slowly got into not into starting my day with some silence. I, it's like I can't get up to brush my teeth unless I have um, at least had at least 10 to 20 or more minutes of silence. Mm -hmm. I, and I don't really understand how people can go without it. You know, I remember that story about the monk. Uh, somebody asked this monk about, you know, how long should people meditate? And he says, Every, everybody should meditate at least 20 minutes an hour if you're busy, right? So, you <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. I, I, th I think that what, what I found, particularly in the demanding world of the academy and all the things that you are being asked to do at any given time, people think it's the cushy life. It is not, you, as I'm sure you know. And so I began uh, to realize that it was so important for being able to start my day and also to cultivate, as I would say, because, you know, my background is in psychology, a spiritual self or a spiritual identity. That was my way of feeding that. And so uh, I think that now, like I said, I cannot start the day without taking some silence. And I'm really working on that evening silence as well. For a long time, particularly when I was uh, training as a spiritual director, um, for a year I dedicated myself to getting in that 20 minutes at night. And I found that everything, my health got better, everything got better. But certainly my best ideas have come on silent retreats for essays or things I'm writing or need to talk about. And I now understand that if I need something, I can ask spirit for it, but I need to listen for it. And I tell people all the time that listen and silent are the exact same letters just rearranged. <laughs> so you cannot listen if mm -hmm. you're not silent. Mm -hmm. they're, they're just, you know, connected. And so I remind myself, even as I'm moving through the day, that I can't hear spirit or God speaking to me if I'm chattering all day long. I know it's ego, ego chatter, 
I'm aware that that's what it is, you know, but it, it obviously takes quite a bit of discipline to, to turn that off and to be with the silence all the time. So, but it is an important part of my life. And, and I think I will say one other thing. I know we were supposed to be talking about this later, but because I have had some serious medical challenges, um, I have found that I have learned many things from being awake in the hospital in the middle of the night. Wow. And there's nothing wow. else going on there. And I've had some really deep experiences. I remember one time being in the hospital and I was, um, it was post-surgery and unfortunately they, they had pulled out some chest tubes and, you know, I was just kind of having some issues with uh, some bleeding. And so the nurses decided that they weren't going to keep putting bandages on it. They just sort of put towels or something and just came and changed them every now and then, which was ridiculous, I thought. But as I sat there thinking, I can't believe I'm going through this. You know, I was having one of those moments. In that, in that stillness of being in that room, the spirit said to me, all you have to do is endure this just tonight. You'll be okay, but you just have to endure this tonight. So I put on a CD or something and, you know, just kind of got myself through it and, you know, life went on. But I think that there are so many opportunities for silence that we often don't take because we're, you know, sort of in our heads chattering about why we are uncomfortable about being in the situation we're in. Right. Yeah. And uh, exactly. so silence can help us with those circumstances as well. So, um, Professor Brown, you, you're a heart transplant recipient, and I believe you shared with me that at the hospital where you received your transplant, you were the first African-American woman to receive a transplant there. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's a delightful story in many ways. I, um, you know, I, 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 was, I was in my early 40s, and I was really not sure that I wanted to have a transplant because it was a scary thing. It's still a scary thing for anybody that has to go through it. Um, and so I remember one early November weekend, I was in the hospital with, in heart failure. And so my doctor came to me and said, well, are you ready to go on the list? And I said, well, not exactly. Um, I said, I'm waiting on a sign. And she looked at me like, this isn't a sign, <laughs> but, um, you know, thinking like an academic, I'm like, it's not the end of the semester. I've got papers to grade, you know, like, how can I have a heart transplant right now? Which was the craziest thing that any person could think. Right. However, what I had done was, um, I said, um, because I've, I've, I'm moving to a point, I was moving to a point where I understood the power of surrender. I put it out there. I said, okay, Spirit, if you want me to have this transplant, give me a sign. So before Thanksgiving, I got a call from a gentleman um, who was a, a minister in Colorado Springs, and he just called me out of the blue. Out of the blue is very meaningful. And I um, hadn't talked to him in you know two or three years, and he was calling me about some research on uh, black women in the church or something. And after we talked about that, he asked me about my life. I said, oh, God. You know, they want me to have a transplant, and I don't know, and oh, these procedures and this medication. He says, oh, I had a gentleman in my congregation, Brother Dewberry. He had a transplant not long ago. I said, really? He says, I'm going to have Doc, I'm going to have Brother Dewberry call you. And so Brother Dewberry calls me up, and, you know, I start talking to him, and he says, oh, yeah, you know, this was such a blessing. And I said, but what about the medication? He says, oh, it's all a blessing. It's God's blessing. I said, well, where'd you have your transplant? He said, oh, University Hospital in 
Denver, Colorado. So Brother Dewberry was number three, <laughs> third person in in the state of Colorado to have a, 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 a trans, third black person to have a transplant. I was soon to be number four. Wow. And, uh, but you know, that was the, I mean, I, what else could I say after that? But <laughs> was that a sign or what? Right. Yeah. You know, that's to, to have, to be connected with the only other person who, you know, so, so I do, I am a believer in, if we have big questions that sometimes we, and I used to tell students this all the time that, you know, if you're trying to make a decision, you gather all the information and then you go someplace, preferably outside and sit down and listen from the inside out, listen from mm. the inside out until you have an answer. And mm. that particular practice has saved my life many times. <laughs> wow. Seriously. Well, wow. I mean, you just told us it literally saved your life right here. Let, 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 let me quick, wait, let me just quickly tell one more because it does have a lot to do with silence. Mm. So uh, many years ago, I was offered a job. I was in uh, at University of Tennessee at the time. Not particularly happy, but I was, you know, doing doing my my work, and um, I got offered a job at Swarthmore College. It was on my short list of places I've always wanted to teach, so I interviewed and and um, and I did all that. And so I, but I wasn't quite sure I should go, and so um, I decided to drive myself to the Smoky Mountains, which weren't far away. I went and found a rock or a log or something and sat out there in the silence for probably an hour or two, I don't know how long it was. And um, I just listened until I heard an answer. And the answer was no, Turn, do not take this job. <laughs> Look, I, 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 I love no. it. Did, no. Did you look for a second opinion? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go to a different All silent spot. And colleagues, everybody was like, she's crazy. But, you know, I just said, I'm going with that. And so, about six months later, uh, I turned down the job. Six months later, I got a call from University of Colorado. And um, it turns out that when it was all said and done, they had offered me uh, one and a half times the money for half the classes. But that's not the real story. So here I am talking to the transplant surgeon uh, as we were preparing for the transplant. And uh, he just casually says, "Why, well, I, you know, I'm really glad that you're not living on the East Coast. I said, why is that? He said, well, you know, there's a lot of centers vying for the same organs, you know, on the East Coast. But out here in the West, I mean, the next transplant center is probably UCLA. And, you know, the heart can only stay out of the body for four hours. So if you were living on the East Coast, you might not make it. Unbelievable. Wow. Wow. So that decision that made no sense that I, you know, made in, in, in the outside stillness of the silence came back to literally save my life. Five yeah. years. So... Here's a question, I, and I hope this isn't too flaky of a question, but do you feel like your relationship with silence changed when you received your new heart? Do you think there's a distinction that you were able to notice? No, but I will say this, and I, I tend to be kind of a stubborn person, and um, I realize that, and this is something that Richard Rohr talks about, you know, he says often spiritual awakening comes from deep suffering or deep love. And I think I'm one of those who had to suffer a lot in order for me to hear what it was that spirit wanted from me and what it was that uh, learning a little bit more about who I am and who, why I'm here. And so what a lovely testimony I have now when I go out to speak about silence and the importance of it. 
because I can then add this testimony. I stop. I can stop a crowd by telling them the story yeah. of the of not only the transplant, but the heart transplant, but the kidney transplant, and the valve replacement on the transplanted heart, and the pacemaker. And I think one of the reasons why I am still alive is because I do depend on silence um, for discernment. And I do depend on silence to hear things about what I should or should not do. I mean, it really is my connection to something greater than me that I feel like is 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 keeping me here for some reason. And I think it's to try to, to encourage other people to um, cultivate this relationship with silence. I mean, I just, I, you know, I just don't think you can hear the guidance without being quiet. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. So transitioning a little bit into into some of your work, Professor Brown, um, I'd love to ask you who your silence hero is, and along with that, maybe kind of give a little brief introduction to the person. So I am very grateful to have stumbled across my, my silence hero, who is Howard Thurman. And um, I was finishing up my spiritual guidance work with Shalame, and I had to write a paper or project, final project. And I really wanted to write it on a more contemporary mystic. And so I was talking to a number of people, and I remember asking a, a clergy person, black clergy person, didn't we have any black mystics or African-American mystics or some, some kind of mystics? Because, you know, I've been reading about all these mystics. And so he says, oh, you don't know about Howard Thurman? And I have to say, I was shocked when I discovered his work and his life because you know, I, 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 we both lived in the same part of the country at the same time, and I could have, if I had known, I would have certainly gone to some of his lectures and talks. But Howard Thurman um, grew up in Daytona Beach, Florida, uh, in the early 1900s. And um, he also had a connection to being outside. He, he used to row along the Halifax River nearby. He used to wander the woods. And he talks a lot about, particularly in his autobiography with Hand and Heart, that he ha felt this connection. He felt this presence. He felt this oneness with, you know, those things that are outdoors. Um, he learned a lot from nature, um, from storms that would come in over the ocean. He would observe that, you know, there were some some trees that, you know, stood, you know, they they were they uh, could withstand the the storms. Um, and he knew that that was something he needed to cultivate in himself, this kind of inner strength. He, he also had a grandmother, Nancy Ambrose, who had been a, a slave. And she really tried to instill in him that his primary identity was as a holy child of God. And this knowingness about who she was was what I—he he talks about what saved her and— kept her through, you know, some of the more horrendous experiences that she had as a slave. But 
she also wanted Howard to be able to have that as his primary identity because she knew, um, particularly in the kind of Jim Crow time that he was growing up in, that he was going to encounter a variety of, um, of uh, difficulties, difficulties being an understatement. Um, but he, Howard Thurman was um, quite bright. He could only uh, finish up to the seventh grade in Daytona Beach. That was, that was the grade that was... Uh, was, was the grade that only, I mean, coloreds could only graduate at the time uh, up to seventh grade, which of course meant that they didn't have enough education to go to high school. So he was privately tutored by someone in his family circle uh, and uh, then was able to pass the, the requirements for eighth grade and he went off to the Florida Baptist Academy and he graduated valedictorian of his class. He went on to Morehouse College right. and it is said that he, re he read every book in the library at the time, um, but he also graduated valedictorian of his class um, and went on to Rochester Colgate Seminary. And um, one of his first assignments was in Oberlin, Ohio, in a Baptist church there. But he was at a meeting one night and he uh, got kind of bored, so he decided to walk out. And at that point, he saw this book um, called Find Finding the Trail of Life by Rufus Jones. And he read it and thought, I need to study with this man. So he was able to um, actually arrange for a study with him. And I think what he learned from Rufus Jones, who, you know, of course, was um, trained in the Quaker mystic tradition of, you know, you wake up in the morning and you have silent worship with your family. And Rufus Jones even talks about as a four-year-old being, being engulfed by the presence um, of some of those um, silent worship services. But Howard also studied, you know, Meister Eckhart and a number of other mystics. And he actually talks about it. And I just want to um, read you a quote from, I found it in one of his sermons where he, um, in, in 1951, where he talks about corporate worship. And he talks about being at, uh, as part of the uh, group silence during a traditional Quaker meeting. And I just want to read this quote from him. He says, nobody said a word, just silence, silence, silence. And in that silence, I felt as though all of them were on one side and I was on the other side by myself with my noise. And every time I would try to get across the barrier, nothing happened. I was just Howard Thurman. And then, I don't know when it happened, how it happened. I wish I could tell you, but somewhere in that hour, I passed over to the invisible line and I became one with all the seekers. I wasn't Howard Thurman anymore. I was a human spirit involved in a creative moment with human spirits in the presence of God. Wow. That is beautiful. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, I uh, have been inspired by his writing. You know, he, he has a, two or three books of meditations. I've been inspired by his life. Because basically, I think he learned early on that there was something special about silence and that he used it to for discernment, to make decisions. And he actually went to, um, to India in the 1930s, 1935-36 to be exact. And during that time, he met with Gandhi. They yeah. had a chance to meet. And they both, you know, in that meeting talked about the importance of silence. And how it, it it's you know vitality for the spirit, and um, so they discussed how important silence was to understanding 
how to operate in oppressive situations, but particularly with respect to civil disobedience and to nonviolence. So, you know, he sort of brought that message back. And and I do think that it was in the midst of some serious contemplation and scrutiny that he was able to write the book, um, Jesus and the Disinherited, which is the book that inspired Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to really, you know, sort of become active in, in the civil rights movement. I often think of, of, of Howard Thurman, you know, he was criticized for not participating more fully in the marches, but he held the spiritual space. I mean, and, and some of his contemplative practices like going in before you go out right. to meet confrontation, you know, to quiet yourself inside before you go out, um, were things that got incorporated um, in, in the training of the marchers. And so, you know, I, I always think of him as being, you know, the godfather of the spiritual, uh, of the civil rights movement. I mean, you know, just in, in the sense of, of always holding the space and continuing to be, you know, the advisor for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and for other people um, in the civil rights movement. Um, and there were a number of people who came through Boston University when he was there um, as dean of the Marsh Chapel. And one of them was uh, Barbara Jordan, who was a very instrumental person in Congress, you know, in her day. So, you know, he had a, had, had a, a, a large influence. He did start, of course, the inter, uh, Intentional Interracial Church Fellowship uh, of All Peoples um, in San Francisco and was there for many years. But when he was asked to, to become the first black faculty member and dean of the Marsh Chapel at Boston University, he, he told them, he said, I'm waiting for a word in my heart yeah. before I answer. Um, and so I think he uh, felt that he could be able to reach even more people, particularly all the students, the international students in particular, who would be able to take his message of you know, contemplative practice. Howard Thurman was, was a master of the use of silence, particularly in his sermons. He has these great pauses in particular places. And sometimes he would also finish, um, say, a sermon and just let, as he said, the hush hang over the audience so that they could kind of absorb it. And so he found that people really enjoyed these quiet moments. So he decided to start as part of his service um, meditation time before the service started. And that's why he wrote Meditations of the Heart and the centering moments and all these other meditations so that people could come in before the service. Um, one of the things that he discovered um, is that when, once he introduced this meditation time, that uh, requests for pastoral counseling and pastoral care went down. He also, um, yes, because he, he felt that silence could be very healing. And he also continued to keep connections with other people in other places that he could no longer see because he had moved. By um, particularly the sh sick and shut-in, he would tell them, okay, look, let's meet in the silence at on Wednesday at 3. Okay. So whatever Wednesday at 3 was for that person, whether it's on a different time zone or not, he would go and he would sit in silence with the person that he was, you know, wanted to either pray for who was sick or whatever. So he really did believe that it was very healing. Well, I'm glad that you went there because that's exactly the kind of the question I wanted to ask about that silence is healing and you've already, you've already started to unpack. Do we have other stories about 
healing with Howard Thurman and silence, either physically? Or, so you've already talked about pastoral care and his speeches and, and those sacred pauses and holding people in prayer and, and in his heart. But do we have access? Because I'm wondering if there's a connection between what you've already described, your physical kind of healing from the silence. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's a connection here with, with Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was very gentle about his approach to this. And so I think he basically felt that it was important for people to begin to understand the power of silence for discernment in particular, as well as for listening for ideas about how healing might occur. But I I cannot think of at this time a particular place. I mean, he also believed that silence was needed for a prelude to an encounter with God. So if you really wanted to experience God, you needed some silence. You know, he writes more about that in um, Disciplines of the Spirit, you know, that one of the things to prepare you is, um, you know, for some silence. But I think that he felt that and he says it on um, one of his books that it was so important to take um, silence because he felt that in in that kind of <clears throat> silent prayer that meeting the presence was actually more important than what you might be asking for. Gotcha, gotcha. So the so just being in the presence is, is was really more important than the words or the ideas. Yes. And and I think, um, you know, I've been able to think about this a little bit more. And what I tell the people that come to me for spiritual direction, because my attempt, my my approach is very contemplative, is um, that sometimes if you can just give a little space to the presence, to the spirit, uh, you know, in the midst of all that chatter, because people always say to me, well, you know, I can't be, I'm not doing this right because my mind keeps wandering or I keep hearing chatter. And, you know, of course, that's what minds do, I tell them. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and that, you know, you just need to bring it back to listening in the silence. But I think what spirit wants is just a little bit of space to get through. Mm. Okay. Mm. Because your your question may not be answered in that moment, but it might be sometime later the next day when you're standing in the kitchen chopping celery or you're, you know, about to go to bed, that you will hear an answer to the question that you had, right? Exactly. So I think that what silence does is that it gives people, it gives it gives the mind some space to hear the guidance it's trying to get through. Yeah, exactly. Um, we, now, I do want—go ahead. No, I was going to say, in, in past— uh, it, conversations, Cassidy and Carl and I have talked about this idea here that you're talking about, this idea called the paradox of intention, where is the more you want something, the less you'll get it. So if you give that space and let go and say, well, I'm going to give up my intention of wanting this right now, I'm just going to let go of it. That actually, if you give that space, it's what you just said. It comes back around in its own time um, if you get out of the way. you know. Right. And, you know, there, there's a lesson in The Course in Miracles about we don't know our own best interests. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, a lot of times we're trying to push for something to happen right now when maybe the best time for it is like, you know, some other time. So I do try um, to get myself out the way <laughs> sometimes, and I think the silence helps me in that. 
Um, but I did want to say one thing, which I also caution my um, uh, my my the, the people that I meet with is that silence is not for everyone and for every time. And I often will say that if you recently are have been have gone through a major loss, if you have been through some traumatic situation, that this may not be a time for silence. Because as we know, when you become silent, everything comes up. It's not just the guidance. It's not just the peace. It's not just the joy, but it's the ugly too. And But I, I do think that there's some goodness in that because then you become aware of it and you can then offer that up, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think that uh, I do caution people because particularly for people of color or people that have been oppressed, they carry a lot of wounds. They come to exactly. you know, spiritual direction with a lot of hurts and, and, and all kinds of things that have happened. And so, you know, I often caution them about, you know, the silence and, and, and encourage them to get professional help if it's something that is just beyond them. Yes, mm-hmm. sure. Very much. Yeah. And Professor Brown, I love what you've said about um, that contemplative space being a place of discernment. And in uh, one of your essays on Howard Thurman, you describe him as a contemplative and a social activist. Um, How do you understand that relationship between contemplation and activism? And what can both your wisdom and Thurman's wisdom tell us about about this important connection? I think that, and I have been recently discussing this a lot more as I go and talk with people, that, you know, when we try to engage in social activism without some kind of spiritual base, it can become disturbed. And I think uh, there is a quote in the book, um, the the book Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around by uh, Bernard Alvarez, who uh, basically said that, you know, uh, activism without a spiritual uh, base is just an angry mob. And so I think the importance of contemplation and of, of, of a uh, regular practice of silence is that it's so important to have something else guiding you in your activism, you know, because sometimes our own egos can get in the way of something that much greater that could, could happen. And so um, I try to listen um, I think this this is something that Howard Thurman very much did, is that, you know, he came to understand that his role was not to organize the civil rights movement. His mm-hmm. role was to um, work on um, feeding the hunger of the human spirit. And mm-hmm. that, of course, became part of it, right? right, right. But, and he was, he was encouraged by one of his professors. He said, I think your influence is much greater than a social problem. Um, and so what happened was he not only had an influence on the social problem, but he had a much greater influence because he understood that we're hungry. We're spiritually hungry. People are spiritually hungry everywhere. And although we have remedies for all sorts of things, you know, people are exercising and trying to eat better. What are we doing to feed our spirits? I feel like, si- and I, I wrote a blog called Silence is Like Fertilizer for the Soul, right? I mean, we need, we, the soul needs it. So, so I think that as we are called to participate in some active way in changing um, what it is that we see in the world, we need to listen for what that role is. There are many people 
who um, participated in the civil rights movement, but not all of them were marching. Some people were feeding people, you know, cooking meals. Some people were putting people up. Um, some people were taking care of children. I mean, so there were, you know, and, and it's just, it's so beautiful when a person, when you, when you encounter someone who knows what their calling is or who knows what their role is. I mean, they're still participating, you know, in an active way, but they know what they're supposed to be doing, right? And so I, I'm, I'm trying to encourage as many people as I know to be still and listen for what it is that you're being called to do. But you need to be doing something. It's not just about, you know, I'm going to sit here and meditate all day. It's really about, all right, so out of this, and, and Thurman really did believe that out of the, the contemplation, what is the action that you're going to participate in to restore God's beloved community? I mean, you know, it's it's the, that's the idea. Mm. Uh, but I do think that the silence, the contemplation, the contemplative practices are so important in understanding what your role is and and when to do it. My best my best example of this is in the movie Selma, which was part of the, of course the real story of of King of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. leading people across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. But if you notice, there was a scene in which he knelt down on the bridge and, and took a moment. He paused and then got up and turned around, took everybody back. And that was just such a great example of a contemplative practice in the middle of uh, uh, a bit of activism, right? right? Sometimes the guidance is turn around, right? <laughs> or sometimes the guidance is not today, right? Mm. The guidance could be wait. So I, I do believe that Thurman would probably add, because he had this lovely notion of what he called inner authority, and that is that on one side, our connection to uh, the eternal has to do with, um, and, and I just want to read actually his, um, his uh, little piece on this. It says, it's called the inward sea. There is in every person an inward sea, and in that sea there is an island, and on that island there is an altar and standing guard before that altar is the, quote, angel with the flaming sword, end quote. Nothing can get by that angel to be placed upon the altar unless it has the mark of your inner authority. Nothing passes, quote, the angel with the flaming sword to be placed upon your altar unless it is part of, quote, the fluid area of your consent. This is your crucial link with the eternal. So the idea here is that we both have the authority to um, decide what it is that we're going to allow on our altar or in our minds or in our hearts. Sometimes people don't think that they have that power, but they do when it's coupled with the power of the eternal, right? Um, so on that side of it, we need to protect our inner sanctuary from <clears throat> what people may be saying or doing, because oftentimes it's not about us, right? <laughs> And then on the other side of that, of course, is this idea that with spirit, you can do anything, right? You can, you can participate in civil disobedience and nonviolence if you see injustices. You can get out of an abusive relationship. You can um, decide that it's time to change your job. And spirit is helping you to do this. Again, using your own authority, not depending upon other people, but listening to spirit about when am I going to do this and how am I going to do this? Because it's, it's really a source of freedom. You know, he, he actually um, has a wonderful um, 
meditation called The Strength to Be Free. And it's really about when you decide that you are going with the spirit, then all kinds of angels will come, you know, to help you. So, you know, it's it's one of those two, um, you know, two edges to that sword, which is that I think that people don't realize the power that they have both to not internalize any negativity that's going on um, in their lives, but at the same time to act with spirit to make changes. Wow. I'm just curious if, if you have a poem from Howard Thurman that you could <clears throat> share with us. He was a poet, right? Yeah. I mean, so much of his work is poetic. It's just like you read it and you're like going, wow. You know, this, I spent a lot of time going, wow. But um, <laughs> he has a lot of, particularly in Meditations of the Heart, he has a, a lot of titles like An Island of Peace Within One's Soul or Silence is a Door to God um, or In Quiet One Discovers the Will of God or In a Moment of Pause, The Vision of God. So he's got a lot of stuff. But the one that I like the most, I'm going to read, and it's called How Good to Center Down. How Good It Is to Center Down to sit quietly and see oneself pass by. The streets of our minds seethe with endless traffic. Our spirits resound with clashings, with noisy silences. While something deep within hungers and thirsts for the still moment and the resting lull. With full intensity we seek ere the quiet passes, a fresh sense of order in our living, a direction a strong, sure purpose that will structure our confusion and bring meaning in our chaos. We look at ourselves in this waiting moment, the kinds of people we are. The questions persist. What are we doing with our lives? What are the motives that order our days? What is the end of our doings? Where are we trying to go? Where do we put the emphasis and where are our values focused? For what end do we make sacrifices? Where is my treasure and what do I love most in life? What do I hate most in life? And to what am I true? Over and over, the questions beat in upon the waiting moment. As we listen, floating up through all the jangling echoes of our turbulence, there is a sound of another kind, a deeper note which only the stillness of the heart makes clear. It moves directly to the core of our being. Our questions are answered, our spirits refreshed, and we move back into the traffic of our daily round. With the peace of the eternal in our step, how good it is to center down. Beautiful. Yeah, that is really good. But in addition to people being able to access uh, recordings of Howard Thurman online, um, how can people find you, Professor Brown? Could you tell us very briefly about your website? Sure. Um, I have a website called Peace for Hearts, peaceforhearts.com. And um, I'm also on Facebook, Facebook slash Peace for Hearts, and also on Twitter. And um so after my transplant, one of the things that I discovered was that first, that uh, the heart will speak to us if we listen to it. Um, and so I'm 
uh, working on publishing a, a manuscript called um, Heart Talk, Learning to Listen to Inner Wisdom. But I also have found that there are lots of people who are not aware of the peace and joy that naturally resides in, the ha- in their hearts. Um, and I think that oftentimes there are things that happen in life that may uh, keep people or prevent them from feeling this peace and joy. So most of uh, the blogs that I have, and I do have some about Howard Thurman, um, what he might say about this or other things, they all always end with the question, would doing this, would having more silence in your life or would befriending, you know, uh, talking to someone that looks lonely, would that add to the peace and joy? Would that help you to feel more of that peace and joy in your life? So I, I came to understand as a result of all these issues with my heart that there was probably some symbolic reason for that and that it was had to do something with obviously love and the degree to which uh, we are engaging in activities, in thoughts, in actions that are more loving than not. And that I think that the more peace that we experience in our minds, in our thoughts, in our hearts, the healthier we are. And I certainly on occasion will ask uh, someone who seems to be struggling, well, so what's, what's keeping you from feeling some peace in your life? What needs to be healed? What needs to be forgiven? What needs to be, you need to perhaps unpack? And who can help you with that? So I, I think that at the time when I had my transplant, you know, I sort of thought about it as making a change in heart. And I realized that I was going to have to make a major change in heart, not just physical heart, but heart as in every way that I could think of. Otherwise, I was not going to survive. And I'm grateful that I just celebrated 23 years as a heart transplant recipient on January 9th. And um, congratulations. Thank you. And uh, coming up on 13 years with a kidney transplant. Um, But I think that one of the reasons why I've been able to survive some of these uh, major medical obstacles is because I do listen and I try to pay attention. So how, what, 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 how am I feeling right now? Hmm, I'm not at peace. So what, what's going on and what do I need to attend to? Uh, do I need to take a pause? One of the things I've learned about ego chatter is that it's either in the past or the future. It's not in the present. And so, you know, cause people often say, well, how can you tell the difference between the, you know, the, the, the spirit speaking to me and, you know, my ego or whatever. And I say, well, here's the criteria. Are you, whatever you're thinking, is it peaceful? Is it loving? Because if it is, and is it joyful, then it's probably from the spirit, right? But if it's about the past or about the future, if it's about you know something angry or something that is negative, it's probably your ego. So, so <laughs> you just need to know that you have a choice. We always have a choice. Which of these voices it. are we going to listen to, right? Yeah. Um, and and I and I think that the path of of the spirit is what is trying to lead us um, to more peace and joy in our lives. And we, we know that by also checking from time to time about what, what, what's in our hearts. What, what are we feeling? About? Wow. Well, that's a beautiful place, I think, to wrap this up. Thank you so much. This has just been a joyful conversation for me. And um, 
Yeah, you know, I've got about 10 new books I want to read, so. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think we, we all do. We only had time. If we only had time, right? <laughs> That's right. I, yeah, I would like to just thank you so much. This, this has been, it's been very moving, actually. I, I, you know, it's interesting to me. I, I go into these interviews hoping to kind of foster the conversation, and I'm finding now that it's not fostering any conversation. I actually just fall at the feet of these people who speak. And you, uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your information and, and, and wisdom today. It was just very, very moving for me. So. Well, you're welcome. I, I've enjoyed sharing my, uh, at least the wisdom that I've gained, some of it, like I said, through suffering, but, you know, obviously useful for many people other than myself. And so, you know, when I have an opportunity, particularly to advocate for silence and stillness and solitude, I just jump at the chance. So, Yeah, Professor Brown, it's um, been such an honor to have you with us. And, and it you know, uh, Carl, Kevin, and I often talk about this idea of recognition when we speak with someone on the topic of silence, you know, and contemplative life. And it's been so just delightful at that point of giving me chills, you know, hearing you talk about silence and hearing you um, speak about silence. It's I just recognize it. And you're so in touch with that deep, deep place um, beyond us. And it's just incredible to hear you speak. So thank you so much for sharing all your insights and, and wisdom with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Very welcome. Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Encountering Silence. To become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. Thank you.